Okay, so we are in Genesis chapter 28, verse, verse 10. I'm going to pray, and then we'll read our passage for today. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you uh, for your word. Lord, as we turn our attention to worshiping you through the studying of your word, we ask that your spirit would lead us and guide us today. Lord, help us to understand uh, what happened in today's story. We pray that you would help the story to come to life to us and that we would see uh, practical applications uh, within this pa- passage, principles that that pass uh, through the ages uh, to us that we can take to heart today. Lord, I do thank you that you are a God who, who comes down to us and meets us where we are. Uh, we thank you for Christ and all that he has done in our lives. And it's in his name I pray. Amen. All right, Genesis chapter 28, verse 10. <clears throat> Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. He had a dream and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching the heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth and you will spread out to the west and the east and to the north and to the south and in you and your descendants shall be the families of the earth of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. He called the name of that place Bethel. However, previously the name of the city had been loose. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety. Then the Lord will be my God. This stone, which I have set up as a pillar, will be God's house. And of all that I give you, I will surely give a tenth to you. And Father, we do thank you and praise you for this time. We ask that you would lead us now. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Okay, so today we begin the, the transition from the life of Isaac over to the life of of, of Jacob, and we begin to see, I think in today's section, the, the beginning of, of God beginning to transform uh, uh, Jacob from the inside out. So far in the story of Genesis, we've seen the faith of Abraham uh, grow into maturity. We've seen the faith of Isaac, I think, beginning when he was to be sacrificed by his father. I think he was more of a mature man at that age than a little boy without any sort of ability to to fight back. Um, but then even in the last week's story, 
where he was sort of uh, bamboozled over who he was giving the blessing to. I, in looking at Hebrews and that story from last week, you know, I've been sort of pondering this. And in Hebrews eleven twenty, we read by fa- by faith Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau, even regarding the things to come. And so initially, I was reading that, going, it just doesn't make sense because it seems like. He had the wool pulled over his eyes, and he wasn't quite sure what he was doing. And initially, he kind of did it, and it seems like at the reading of the passage that he was trying to circumvent God's plan, which he knew about. But then I've been kind of wondering if maybe by the time he gives the blessing or the curse that was left to Esau, and then the second blessing at the very end of last week, if those were the things that were done in faith, if finally... If he said, hey, son, this to Esau, this is what I have for you. This is what God has established for you. And then to Jacob, when he sends him away on this journey, if he did that by faith, I don't know. But the Bible makes it clear that it gives, gives Isaac credit for being this man of faith. And so where did we leave off? We left off last week with Esau was furious. Uh, he wanted to kill his younger brother. He didn't want to uh, hurt his dad in that way. And so he basically comforted himself. We're, to- we're told that he found comfort in, uh, in saying that as soon as dad dies, I'm killing my brother, and then I'll be happy. Um, so that's where the story kind of left off. Rebecca gets word that, this, that the one son is furious at the other son. She goes to, uh, to, she goes to Isaac. I'm going to make sure I get all the, lives, the names correct. She goes to Isaac. She says, hey, Esau is going to kill Jacob. We need to have, we got to send him away to my family, to, to the people that God wants him to go be with so that he can get a wife unlike Esau who's married the Canaanite women and is doing exactly what God doesn't want. And so in a rush, Isaac gives him the blessing again. We see the, uh, the Abrahamic covenant being sort of passed down uh, to Jacob in last week's story. And Jacob today, he's on the run. There's a lot of questions about uh, Jacob and his faith and his relationship with God. It seems that he was raised in a home of faith, but he doesn't seem to be acting uh, as an individual who has embraced the faith on his own. And I think things are about to change. And so in verse 10, we read that Jacob departed from Beersheba, the very southern part of Israel, toward Haran, which is very, very, very far northeast. It's about 450 miles. If we can go to the next slide, and we'll just leave this slide up here for the duration. Um, so there's a lot to kind of look at. Um, the This white one is the, the one I want you to focus on right here. We have the Dead Sea. There, there's the Jordan River that goes up to the Sea of Galilee. Uh, this bottom oval is Beersheba. It's the southern part of Israel. Uh, the next circle up is where today's story happens. It's in what was known as Luth or Luz, uh, and, Be- and Bethel is a name that it would become. It's very close to Jerusalem, and uh, the square up at the top right is, is where he was heading. That's where his people came from. It's about 450 miles um, at a 20-minute mile pace for walking, which is like a normal or reasonable pace. It would take six and a quarter days of walking straight, like never, no sleep, no doing anything. Um, you'd be just six days of walking indefinitely. 
for, for about six days. Now, I don't think that's very reasonable. Uh, about, t- uh, I don't know, on the second, however many days ago the second was, it was my 21st wedding anniversary with Anna, who's home uh, with a sick boy today. And we decided, we thought it'd be really funny that morning to say, hey, what do we think about on our 21st wedding anniversary walking 21 miles today? Next year, we're going to kilometers. We're not going to do the 21 miles again. <laughs> but so we, we basically spent about like nine hours, you know, walking around the beach. We got our 21 miles done. And I don't think that Anna was ready to start walking the next day uh, because the stomach flu happened that night. And, uh, but so like a reasonable pace, I would think, is like about 20 miles you can accomplish in a day, no problem. And so we're talking about a 22 or 23-day journey at like a normal pace. So he's not that many days into his journey, maybe two or three days in. Um, he's off in a hurry. It, it, this is not like when Abraham sent his servant to Haran uh, to go find a wife for Isaac. Uh, they had camels and carts and supplies, and we're going to see in today's story, it's, it's like Jacob takes off with the clothes on his back. He's got nothing. Um, I don't know if I turn my page too soon. Yeah, I'm right here. Oh, shocking. My mind and my notes are in the actual white spot. That has never happened. Uh, um, but like he takes off, he's got nothing. And I just like imagine that he has super fears and concerns. Like, what did I do? Like, this, this is a guy who, I think when he took his brother's birthright, it was the brother was a fool and gave it up. It wasn't like he did anything deceitfully. His brother came in and was like, I'm starving. I'm going to die. Like, give me that red stuff. And he's like, okay, well, I'll give it to you for your birthright. And he's like, well, what's, what's the big deal? I'm dying anyhow, so my birthright is nothing to me, so just give me the bowl of stew. It's like, okay. That's not, that's not really swindling him out of everything. It's just kind of like, well, you're an idiot, and I'm going to, like, if you want to make this trade, I'll, I'll make the trade. Now, the story from last week, this is different. This is mom saying, hey, dress up like your brother, lie to your dad, blaspheme, saying God led you to do all this stuff really a low pl- place in his life. And then everything implodes. The whole family falls apart. They're totally separated. He's now on the run for his life, going 500 miles to somewhere to people he doesn't really know. And he's got the clothes on his back, no food, nothing. And I imagine that he has some like serious concerns, uh, feelings of like, what have I done? Like, I think I've gone too far this time. My family's destroyed. I'm basically homeless. And what am I going to do? And I don't know if you've been there, but like, I certainly have had moments in my life where I like did something and you think, oh, this is like the point of no return. Like, there's not forgiveness to be found here. There's not uh, reconciliation to be found out of this. I've like crossed a line of the sand that's too far. And I imagine that this is where Jacob is. And we're told in verse 11, we're going to see how the sadness of the story. And he happened upon a particular place. I do find that funny. This is actually Bethel. This is a, uh, next to Jerusalem, this city is mentioned uh, the most amount of times in the Old Testament. So it's like a, a known location, but he just happened upon a particular place and he spent the night there because the sun had set and he took one of the stones in that place and he made it a support for his head. 
and he laid down in that place. So this is obviously before Mr. Pillow and various things. Uh, for some reason, I don't know if because I'm reading the story, I'm seeing a lot of like online ads. They're now trying to market to me a square pillow. I'm curious about it, but I'm not sure. Like I'm like, oh, this is like, I wonder if this is like the rock pillow that's supposed to be better. But it seems that this is just like a pitiful story. Uh, the other picture, just so you can meander in your mind while I'm talking, um, if you go to Bethel today, there's nothing there. Uh, Bethel's not mentioned in the New Testament. This is a spot where a lot of different religions sort of descend, and they claim a lot of things happened at this spot. So some groups would say that inside of that structure, uh, which is like a prayer room for like Islam, when Islam went through there, um, or the Crusades was another part of the building. So it's like a building that a couple different groups added onto, but apparently there's a rock in the middle of it that they claim to be was the actual pillow. I don't necessarily believe it, but I, I put the picture up here so that you can get a glimpse of like what the geography kind of looks like. It's nothing. It's desert. It's like uh, going to Daly Ranch with not, you know, like, but all the houses are not there around the surrounding area. And so where am I in my notes? So he happened upon the spot He's so pitiful. All he has for a pillow is a rock. Like normally if you're camping, you have a backpack. You can kind of grab your backpack. You can kind of like configure it for, for something. You can use a shoe. You can use like your extra pair of pants or a jacket. Like he has nothing. He has a rock. And I'm not thinking that Jacob was like imagining that he was going to meet God in this place. But God is about to show up and intervene in his life in a way that he could never have imagined. And I do think that God does that to us in the place where you least expect it. God shows up in your life and he does something that's like life transforming. I, I think it's often in these moments of our valleys and the very low points when God intervenes and he gets a hold of us and he changes us. I know he did for me. And verse 12, and he had a dream. And behold, a ladder was set upon the earth, which is top reaching the heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. Uh, so just trying to like imagine this in this dream. Dreams can be kind of funny. I've had a bunch of weird dreams this week. It's, um, <laughs> they're really funny. I, like I, what, I got my brother and sister-in-law sent me to law school. They're both attorneys. But it wasn't a normal law school. It was like a law school for sleazy attorneys. And so they were trying to teach me how to dress like a sleazy attorney. I'm like, what is happening this week? I don't think it was God. But like, I think God's like reading this story. My dreams have been participating with like weird stuff. So in this dream, there's like this ladder that goes up from the earth all the way up to, to heaven. And, and between the ladder, so from heaven going down to earth and back, it's these angels and angels are either uh, messengers from God or ministers of God. That's, that's how we see them in the, new, in the Bible, is that they're either proclaiming something from God or they're ministering to an individual on behalf of God. But it's this image of this huge thing going up to heaven. It kind of reminds me of the Tower of Babel. Remember early in Genesis, they built this tower. They said, we're going to build it up high so we can get up to the heavens and we can control. And God said, this is a bad idea. We're going to uh, confuse all of your languages and we're going to make this, we're going to scatter you upon the earth because it's a bad idea. But now the same image of like this like ladder 
between humanity and God appears in his dream. Now, Jacob cannot climb the ladder. The, the ladder is being accessed by the angels going up and down. And then behold, the Lord was standing above it. So it seems like the father is at the top of the heaven. And he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac. So here is God. And God sees Jacob and he says, hey, Jacob, I'm God. Nice to meet you. <laughs> we have to talk. He says, I am the God of your father, Abraham, who is his grandfather. Uh, and I'm the God of your father, Isaac. And it's like he's saying, we haven't met yet. I'd like to introduce myself to you so that I can become your God as well. And so in this story today, we're going to see that, that God is going to transfer the, the covenant that was given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, a significant covenant, really chapters 12 through 15, it's going to transfer from Abraham. It's already transferred to Isaac. And now God is going to transfer it to Jacob. Um, this Abrahamic covenant is a unilateral covenant between God and his people. Uh, it's not contingent on them performing or doing certain things. The covenant is bound by God and his character and his word. And so we see Throughout these patriarchs, they all failed. They all fell short. But it was because of God that the promise passed down. And so he said, okay, Jacob, I'm God. This, I'm the God of Abraham. I'm the God of Isaac. And I'm about to become your God. The land on which you lie with that really comfortable pillow, I'm going to give to you, uh, to your descendants. On the land which you lie, I'm going to give to you and your descendants. So he says, I'm going to give you this land, this area. The Abrahamic covenant was a ton of land. We're talking like down into Egypt, up into modern day Iraq. It is huge and significant. Um, he says, I'm going, to, I'm going to give to you this land and to your descendants. And he's saying this to a guy who is single, basically homeless, no food, no resources, nothing totally destitute. And he's saying, I'm going to give this all to you and to your descendants. And speaking of your descendants, your descendants will be like the dust of the earth. And you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And you and your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. So he said, your family is going to grow. I told Abraham when he was unable to have a child, that he would have a child. And that through that child, you're going to have as many ans or ancestors, descendants, as the stars in the sky and the sand on the sea. I'm going to bless you immensely. And so now we're at this sort of this choke point again. Here is Jacob without a wife, without any children, without any sort of hope. And God says, I have some hope for you. Look around as far as you can go. Like this, like if you can see out to the Mediterranean Sea, if you look out to, you know, modern day Jordan or Iraq, as far as you can see out in the desert, all of this land, as far as you can see, I'm giving to you. And you're going to have children and grandchildren and great grandchildren. And uh, from the New Testament, we know through the Abraham that, that people will be grafted in by faith outside of uh, DNA and you will inhabit this whole area. And through your descendants, 
the world will be blessed. And it begs the question, like, what is he talking about? He's foretelling of the birth of Christ, the Messiah that would come, that would be the agent that would graft uh, humanity together into this promise. And he says in verse 15, Behold, I am with you, and I will keep you wherever you go, and I will bring you back to the land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And if you read through this a couple times, notice that there's, there's not any sort of conditional statements. There's no clauses like, I'm going to do this if you do this for me. God simply says, I am doing this in your life. There is no conditions. There's no maybe or maybe not, depending on how you respond to me. These things are happening. I'm continuing this unilateral covenant that I initially gave to Abraham, and I'm following through with my promise to Abraham that's been passed on to your father and is now being passed on to you. It is conditional on me, my word, and my character. So I don't know how you would respond. Jacob is getting this dream. Is he going to respond like me when I woke up on like whatever day that was? And I looked around, I looked at my pajamas, I'm like, I'm not a sleazy attorney. It was a dream. Like I thought I was like, I thought I walked away from everything to go like, you know, like the movie, My Cousin Vinny. I thought that's what I was like being conditioned to become. And it's like, you know, when you have these dreams and you wake up and you're like so relieved, like, thank God it was a dream. Like I thought it was real. Like how would Jacob respond? Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and he said, the Lord is in this place. He knew that this was God. This wasn't that he had some bad Mexican food the night before and he's having weird dreams. Like this is his creator met with him this night through this dream. And it was profound. The Lord is certainly in this place and I didn't know it. He said I, that God is in this place, in this, this location in Bethel, uh, which he's, it was he must have given the name Bethel. Previously, Abraham went to this location. And the Bible refers to it as Bethel, so I don't know if they like took the modern name and wrote it back into history. But what do we know about Bethel? We know that it means house of God. <clears throat> it's 11 miles to the north of Jerusalem. It's the only city in the Bible. Um, like next to Jerusalem, it's mentioned the most amount of times. So only Jerusalem is mentioned more than Bethel in the Old Testament. So it was a, it was a city that was well known throughout the Old Testament. It was a major trading center because it sort of was on these crossroads between out to the east, to the north and the south. So it was a very strategic location. First mentioned with Abraham, like I've mentioned. If you were here and you remember back to the story, uh, Abraham, had built an altar to this location. And then later in his life, he had some fear. He acted not in faith. He goes down to Egypt. God says, what are you doing going down to Egypt? You didn't consult me. You didn't ask for like my guidance. He repents. He goes back to Bethel and he makes a sacrifice at Bethel again, uh, getting right with God. Uh, this is a city that on, uh, on Elijah's last day of, of his earthly ministry, he met with a bunch of prophets before he was taken into heaven. He met at Bethel. Um, it would ultimately, ultimately be burned down by King Josiah and destroyed, and it would never be mentioned again in the New Testament. 
And so here's this spot that's like super significant. Jacob is like waking up going, man, God is in this place. I, like, I didn't even know it. And when I look at that statement, all I think of is like, how many times have I been somewhere in a situation and be like, man, God is here. I had no clue. Like, like how often in our life is God like moving and intervening and we just fail to see his hand upon us? Like not even like the near misses on the road, like the ones that, you, that never happened that you didn't know because God was doing stuff to kind of keep you safe. Like he suddenly came to this big aha moment, like God is here. Like I've been living my own life just kind of talking the Christian talk or the Jewish, not even, I mean, it's like we're talking pre-Jewish talk. Like just that God was doing stuff, but I'm living my own life, wheeling and dealing on my own. But now I've encountered God. And verse 17, he had a very natural response. He was afraid. You encounter God? Fear is the most logical and natural response. He was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. Now there's fears natural. The, like he sees this location where like 11 miles within Jerusalem to see that God actually shows up in very real and tangible ways in this little part of the world is mind boggling. Then he uses this, uh, this phrase, the gate of heaven, like that there was the access point into the heavens where God is in their thinking. Um, Jesus would reference this. If you have your Bibles and you want to go over to, to John chapter one, you can go there, you can listen to me, whatever you choose. Uh, but we find ourselves in the very beginning of, of, of the gospel of John. Jesus is calling the disciples together. Um, where do I want to... Where do I want to start? Philip had encountered Jesus. Philip goes over to Nathaniel and says, we found the Messiah. You got to come meet him. You got to come see him. Um, so verse 43, the next day he, he purposed to go into Galilee and he found Philip and Jesus said to him, follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, we have found him whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, the famous line, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and he said to him, behold, an Israelite indeed whom there is no deceit. So Jesus, when he encounters Nathanael, he sees this guy, and he says, this is a good man. This, this is a godly man. This is a Jewish man that there's no deceit within him. He's pure of heart. He loves God. He's genuine. This is quite the compliment to Nathaniel. And Nathaniel said to him, how do you know me? Like, he didn't say, like, you're off base, but it's like, this is ridiculous. You don't even know me to be giving me this kind of compliment? How, how are you saying that you know these things about me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Like there's great speculation amongst like commentators and just Christians. Like what was he doing? 
what happened. Like, I don't think we know, but it's that something was happening under the fig tree that Nathaniel knew that he was alone. I'm guessing he was seeking the Messiah or praying to God in a way that only, like, for Jesus to authenticate this moment to Nathaniel, Nathaniel knew that for an individual to do that, they had to be God. And Nathaniel answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Like, so whatever in this moment, it was enough for Nathaniel, this godly Jewish boy, to know that this indeed was the Messiah. It was huge. So Jesus answered and said to him, because I said that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? Like, is, is that greater? Like, if that's all it takes, wonderful. Um, you will see greater things than these. Like, you're gonna, like, I have things in store for you that you can't even imagine at this point. And he said to him, truly, truly, this is Jesus speaking to Nathaniel, I say to you, you will see, okay, this is the part that relates to Genesis chapter 28. And he said to him, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of God, or the Son of Man. So he references this picture, who every good Jewish, not even a good Jewish boy, all the Jewish boys would know the story. Like if you were a Jew living during this time, you knew the Old Testament, uh, good or bad. They knew the stories of their patriarchs. They knew the story of Jacob in this dream out in Bethel, and that there was this ladder, and that the father was on top of the ladder, and Jacob was at the bottom of the ladder, and these angels were coming up and down, uh, communicating with Jacob and giving him this vision. And Jesus now says, like, you will see the heavens opened up and the angels of God ascending and descending just like that dream, the father up in the heaven and the angels going back and forth. But what does he say about the ladder? The son of man. They'll be ascending and descending on the son of man. Later, as you go through uh, to John chapter 14, Jesus would continue to sort of paint the picture that he is the only way, that, that to get to the Father, to get right with God, is exclusively through Jesus. There's no way around it. In John fourteen six, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. That Jesus is the ladder by which we can access God. Again, through the Gospels, God comes down to man and reveals himself to humanity Man cannot go to God. All religions apart from Christianity have a ladder system that if you do good, every bit of good that you do, you get one rung higher on the ladder. And they think that maybe when you get to the top of the ladder, you have access to God. And God says, absolutely not. There is no way that you as a person can get to God on your own merits. You just can't do it. We are the the, the most quote-unquote righteous person amongst us fails desperately short. I think Jay Vernon McGee said this would be like having a jumping contest to see who can jump to Hawaii, standing on the beach of the, uh, and you can get an Olympic jumper and they make it 30 feet and said, well, I'm better than you. I made it to Hawaii. And it's like, no, no, you missed it by like 2000 miles or whatever distance it is. Jesus says, I am the ladder. I am the way to access God. And Jacob I believe he understood in this picture what was happening, that this was the gate of heaven, that God showed himself to me, that there was this relationship to be had with him, 
not dependent on my works because I have none. I have nothing. If anything, I'm a miserable sinner that just deceived my dad. And I can't help but to think that he feels a little bit crummy about what he'd just done. His whole family is, is scattered. And in the midst of this, God's mercy and grace appears to Jacob and says, the Abrahamic covenant is still there. I'm still doing something in your midst. I'm going to take care of you. I will get you to your family. I will get you back safely. I'm going to bless your socks off beyond what you can possibly imagine. What an encounter with God. And so verse 18, so Jacob got early up early in the morning and he took the stone that he had placed uh, as a support for his head and he set it up as a memorial stone and he poured oil on its top. Then he named that place Bethel. Uh, but previously, the name of the city had been Luth. And we see something that becomes a thing throughout the Old Testament of standing stones. I think it was their way of journaling. They would make a pile of rocks, and they'd say, at this spot, God did something. And we see it crossing into the Jordan. We see it at a bunch of different locations. They're like, hey, whenever we go by there, and our kids are like, hey, dad, what's that pile of rocks? Like, let me tell you about what God did uh, and why these rocks are here. And so he doesn't quite make a pile of rock. He has a rock, his pillow. And then he puts some oil on it, and he says, this is the house of God. Um, and I do think in a, an important application for us, like I'm, I say this, like I'm a terrible journaler. Like whatever you have to do to sort of document in your mind these moments, these encounters when God has done something, it's good for us to write it down. It's good for us to like make note of it so that later when we're faced with our next crisis, we can look back and say, you know what? God was faithful to me during this incident, during this incident, during this incident, and he's going to be faithful to me during this future one. By remembering his faithfulness in the past, it helps us to be more faithful with the uncertainties of the future, which we all have. So then we come to verse 20. Uh, Jacob also made a vow. It's the first and I believe the only time that a patriarch makes a vow with God. Um, before I get into the vow, there, there, there is some discussion amongst scholars. No, nobody has the answer. I kind of want to give the benefit of the doubt. So I'm going to cover the negative side really quickly, and then I'm going to move on to the positive aspect. So a lot of people think, oh, Jacob is still a scoundrel. He's a wheeler and a dealer, and he's trying to make a vow with God. Like he's trying to make a deal with God. All right, well, I saw you, God, but I got a deal, just like the stew. Okay, if you do these things, then I'll do this. But it's just ridiculous if you take, I mean, maybe there's a little bit of that in there, but I can't help but to imagine in the things that we see from Jacob in the story that Jacob is genuine in this, that he's just offering of himself saying that based on what you've said, I'm giving myself to you. I don't take this as he's making, like he's wheeling and dealing with God. It just doesn't make sense to me, but it could be. So if you hold that view, God bless you. I like, that's fine. There, there are plenty of others who go that route, but this vow he makes, he says, if God will be with me, and will keep me on this journey that I take and give food to me to eat and garments to wear. So like right there, I don't get that this guy has a lot of like, uh, he's not playing with a, with a strong hand. 
He's got no clothes. He's got no food. He's not really in a position to bargain. He's got nothing. He's destitute. And so he's saying, like, if God will be with me and keep me on this journey that I take and give me food to eat and garments to wear, and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. And this stone which I have set up as a memorial stone will be God's house. I don't know that he needs that house so much. Um, and everything that I give you, Everything that you give me, I will assuredly give a tenth to you. Um, so the, the parts that he said, if God will do these things, if God will keep him and be with him, give him food, give him clothing, and get him back to his hometown where his family is safely. If God delivers on that part, which God has already said that he will do, then he says, the Lord will be my God. This pillow will be God's house, which I don't think that God needs that little stone. And I will tithe 10%. And I don't think that God needs his 10%. But I think that these things, the house of God, the stone and the tithing, I believe that these are more for Jacob than they are for God. Um, He's setting up this mile marker so that he can reflect upon, like, I don't want to forget this incident that had me, this encounter. And then the 10% as we give, tithing isn't for God, it's for us. That like I'm a tithe, like I tithe, I think it's training wheels for Christian giving. And then as we give from what we receive, it like orientates our whole life into the proper position that it's supposed to be. And like I think back to like the young gunner at 22 when I became a Christian. And I was still sort of, well, like right before I became a Christian and I was pushing back against Christianity, I'm like, man, churches, all they want is my money. I just laugh. I was like 21 with a $1.38 in my bank account. And I was like convinced that they wanted all my money. And it's like, I don't think that that like, um... but then when I got to the point where I started tithing, I realized that by when I was giving, what I was doing, I was orientating my heart to God and saying, God, everything I have is yours. And I'm giving this back for my heart to be in check. And God has used that in ways in my life that I'm super thankful for. Okay, so what do we do with this passage? I'm out of breath. Um, like, first off, I don't know what to do with Jacob's, like, like I, I, with, with Jacob's response to God. Like, one option is that he's trying to strike a deal, but I just have a hard time with that. Um, the other option is that he's genuinely responding in worship in his encounter with God which I think is, I think that's a real possibility. Or like maybe a third observation is he's being transformed. Like we definitely are going to see the transformation. And so even in this transformation, he's, he's kind of dealing with God as he's always dealt with, but that's not actually what he's doing. He's still having this hard time understanding grace. And I know that in my own life, like it's, it's taken a lifetime to understand God's grace um, because I was a scoundrel. And so in my heart, what I think before God is that I can't accept his grace because I deserve punishment. I deserve this. And so I'm going to give back to God. Even though I've experienced his grace, I've experienced his forgiveness, I'm still sort of wired by our economy that I did this, and so I have to pay it back. And it's been this like daily lesson that God doesn't operate like this. God has paid for my sins. There's nothing to pay back. He paid for it all in full and complete And I need to learn day by day what it means to be under his grace, to think under his grace, to be gracious towards other people, 
And I think that this is what Jacob is experiencing, that God has poured out his promises to him. He responds with his life. But maybe when he got older, he would have changed his wording. I don't know. What I do know is that God came down and met Jacob where he was. And I know that God does that today. So I don't know what things you're going through in your life, but I do know that God will meet you in your spot. I heard one guy say recently that so many people think uh, that Christianity, he put it in terms of like taking a shower, that there's a hot shower with good water pressure, you're filthy, and you think that you have to clean yourself up before you can get into the shower. No, no, you go and you get into the shower dirty, and then the shower begins to clean you up. We are filthy with sin. There is no cleaning yourself up before experiencing God. You come to him dirty, and in his presence, through the blood of Jesus, he begins to clean us. And it's a wonderful experience. And so God's faithfulness continued also through, through Abraham, through Isaac, and now to Jacob. And it seems that in this moment, the baton of this Abrahamic covenant has been passed on to Jacob. And Jacob's life is going to be transformed over the next few chapters. He ultimately is going to become Israel, the father of this nation. And so what do we do with this? Well, I find encouragement that God is looking for us when we're not looking for him. I would not be here today. I was never looking for God. God uh, interrupted my life to say, I have a different plan for you. And after a few years, I got a, I, my attention was gotten. I find encouragement that it's the kindness of God that leads us to repentance, not the harsh hand of God beating us up. Paul tells us in Romans that it's the kindness of God that leads you to repentance. It's his love, his mercy, his grace that transforms us. And when I look at this life, I, in the last 24 hours, this whole idea of responding to God with our lives is reasonable. Yesterday morning during the men's Bible study, it was a passage in Mark, and it was this passage that was like super challenging. The passage was Jesus saying, if you, if you want your life, you save it by following me, by picking up your cross, denying yourself and following me. This is not the prosperity gospel. Like, like wait, Jesus, I think following you, I thought you were going to give me like a good allowance and like good health and all this stuff. It's like, no, no, no. Pick up your tool of execution, deny everything and follow me. And as you surrender your life, you're going to find true life. And it's reasonable. Paul would write in, in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living and holy sacrifice, acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of, of worship. And you can translate that word spiritual as reasonable. Like based on what Jesus has done for us, going to the cross, being the atonement for our sins, absorbing the wrath of God fully for us. By grace alone, it's reasonable that we respond to him and say, Lord, here I am. Use me. Whatever you want with my life, I'm yours. That's not works. That's a reasonable response. And so, Father, we do thank you for the story. I thank you for the story of Jacob's ladder, these 
angels descending and ascending between heaven and this man. It is such the picture of how you deal with us. I thank you, God, that you have met or are trying to meet each one of us uh, where we are. Father, I pray that you would give us a picture of your holiness, your might, so that we would be overwhelmed. We thank you that you meet us with your mercy. We thank you that you meet us with your grace. We thank you with the truth that you have met us with the assurance that Jesus' work on the cross was sufficient to pay for our sins. We pray, Father, that you would continue to heal us and mend our thinking and our minds so that we would be people who live under grace and walk by grace. We thank you that it's not about our perfection, it's about your perfection. And we love you, Father. And it's in Christ's good name I pray. Amen.